now, if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 3, we'll read the scripture. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was not burning, yet it was burning, but yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now normally what we're taught um, when we're young, allegedly, um, is that it's rude to interrupt. Have you been taught that? It's rude to interrupt. If you haven't been taught that, it's rude to interrupt. Um, and what, you know, none of us like interruptions at all. You're talking and you're saying something and then somebody pops off and says something. And you, oh, yeah, I'm sorry that you thought that I was saying it didn't matter. But you know how it is. Somebody is talking and they're saying something. And, of course, you're thinking about other things. But they're talking nonetheless. And then something pops into your head that then there's nothing more important in the entire world than the thought that is in your brain. And if you don't get it out of your mouth, your brain will explode. So you say it and you interrupt. And it's rude. Yeah, of course, the time doesn't feel rude. You feel like the, the person you're interrupting ought to be uh, grateful for your brilliance and sharing such insight in the middle of their, uh, their thought. They might even, you would think, apologize for having been talking while you meant to interrupt. But none of us like being interrupted. None of us like interruptions in our plants. We're driving somewhere and somebody has had the audacity to wreck the car and block the lane. Uh, you go to the grocery store and... It's frustrating to discover that other people shop at their grocery store and are going to the line that you want to buy your, your items uh, from. Uh, nothing is more frustrating than having our plans interrupted. The, the things that we want to do when they get changed, it's irritating. And this morning what we're going to talk about with Moses is God's interruption. God's interruption in Moses' life. And I want us to see exactly how... Uh, God does his interrupting and hopefully draw some connecting points uh, to how God interrupts our life. And you remember how Moses started his life. He was born during a very dangerous time. Uh, the king of Egypt at the time was seeking to uh, limit the population of the people of Israel by killing all the male baby boys. And 
Moses survived that by the hand of God and the uh, diligence of his parents. If you remember, God, Moses, even at the beginning of his life, seemed to be chosen by God. The Bible says he had a beautiful appearance about him. His parents knew very early on he was selected for something. He then was saved out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. He was then saved out of uh, a death into living and growing up in Pharaoh's household. For 40 years, he grew up in Pharaoh's household as a daughter of, uh, or I should say, as a son of the, the Pharaoh's daughter. You would imagine that he had decided at this point he was chosen for something very important. In fact, he was right. God had chosen Moses to deliver Israel from the people of Egypt. And Moses had it in his mind that obvious God, obviously God had determined to have him raised up in the glories of Egypt, to have the influence and the power and the strength to swoop in and save Israel from the Egyptians. So he does that, does just that. Forty years old, and he goes out and sees an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. And Moses comes to that guy's defense, and in fact he strikes down the Egyptian and kills him. And Israel has a parade for him. Yea, Moses, deliverer of... No, they didn't. They reject him as their leader. They don't want him to rock the boat, to stir the pot. It's already bad, don't make it worse. So Israel rejects him, and then Egypt considers him a murderer. And the Pharaoh wants to have him executed. So Moses now has to flee, and he flees from Egypt, the only home he has ever known, out to the land of Midian, where he meets the priest of Midian, Jethro, and he marries one of his daughters, and he has a family. We learn elsewhere in the Bible, when we begin Exodus chapter 3, he has been out in the land of Midian for 40 years. 40 years old, he stepped into the call of God to save the people of Israel, and he failed miserably. Now, 40 years later, this is what it says. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. God's interruption in Moses' life. Here, let's look at this. Moses, the shepherd. Moses has now gone from the halls of power in Egypt to shepherding a flock in Midian. What do the Egyptians think of shepherds? We learn this at the end of Genesis when Joseph and his brothers came into Egypt. The Egyptians were deeply offended by the livelihood of a shepherd. The Bible says shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. So you now have Moses raised as an Egyptian. What does he think of shepherds? Gross. It's gross when sheep are eating. It's worse after. It's gross. Everything about it's gross. And now he has been a shepherd for 40 years. And look at how influential and powerful he is. Moses was keeping whose flock? Not his flock. After 40 years of shepherding, he still didn't own a sheep. That's not an awesome shepherd. Moses had started his life as a baby, imagining perhaps and likely understanding from God that he was destined for greatness. And now at this point in his life, what he is, is he is a failed hero, a murderer who's in hiding, and a shepherd who is just marginally successful. We often describe people like this this way, how the mighty have fallen. 
an abomination to his own people, shepherding a flock he doesn't even own, essentially a hired hand of his father-in-law. Do you think that created any tension in the house? Of course it did. Now I would suggest this for Moses as he's shepherding his father-in-law's flock. His life might not have been what he expected it to be, but it was a life. He had a wife, he had two children, he had a father-in-law, he was living the nomadic, the nomadic life, what we might now describe as uh, the Bedouin life, meaning going from place to place, finding the best place to shepherd his flock. And a nomadic life was a family life. That means the younger took care of the older, and the older taught the younger. And as tight-knit family and tribal groups, they would look out for one another. So maybe he wasn't living in a palace, but he had a life. He had family, and he had closeness, and he had relationship, and for all intents and purposes, he had everything he could need. And he's been doing this 40 years, and so we would imagine he was probably used to it. At this point, he has probably resigned himself to the oblivion of being a shepherd in the wastelands of Midian. It has been 40 years. At a certain point, you might just let the dreams go, right? It's time to be realistic and enjoy life the way it has been giving you. So, one day, 40 years later, he leads his sheep to the west of the wilderness to Horeb, the Mount of God. This is the same mountain later on that Moses is going to ascend and get the Ten Commandments and the Law from God. Now, this is some trip from the land of Midian. This is probably week week and a half, maybe two weeks journey from where the Midianites lived. It's a significant trek, and this would have been normal. He's probably been to this area dozens and dozens of times. You go where the grass is, you take the sheep where the food is, and he is grazing his sheep as any good shepherd would. Everything was going as planned. You walk the sheep a little bit, you make sure they eat, you sleep. Nobody bothers you. This is fantastic. Sheep rarely talk back. When they do, you snap their leg. Not a big deal. He's walking, and all of a sudden, off in the distance, he sees a, a brush fire, a, a fire of some kind, probably on the ridge, and maybe he could barely even make it out as he first saw it. Of course, the first thing you think is a shepherd out in the wilderness, well, there must be another shepherd keeping his flock, and it's best to know your enemy or know your friend, and so he maybe he's going to go investigate it to make sure we get the lay of the land. You keep your sheep over there, I'll keep my sheep over here. He gets closer, and it's still going, and he realizes it's a, a bush on fire. And this wouldn't have been terribly surprising for Moses either. This was a typical thing to do. You pull a bush out to get your night fire going. But he would have known from having burned hundreds of these bushes that these bushes don't burn that long. In the dry and arid conditions, these things have very little moisture in them. You light them to get the good wood burning that will burn for a long time. And now as he gets closer, he realizes this is a bush that's been burning. and It's been burning this whole time. Why isn't this thing burning up? says he gets even closer and as you notice he looks at the fire he says, you know, this bush isn't even on fire it's not being consumed you could imagine if he's looking at this fire he can see the bush with all the leaves and everything on it he says, it's not burning up it's more like a bush with fire on it but it's not on fire well that's strange maybe I'm going to take a look at it he says to himself and God is going to make himself known to Moses out of the fire in the bush and this is shouldn't surprise us at all. God makes himself known through fire throughout the Bible. He made himself known to Abraham as a pot of fire when he sealed the covenant. 
He's going to make himself known to the people of Israel as a column of fire as he leads them at nighttime. He's going to make himself known at this same mountain as a, a fire and smoke that uh, appears like it's coming out of a furnace on this mountain. Later on, Elijah is going to see God reveal himself as a fire that comes down and consumes the offering. And even later in Elijah's life, he's going to fly back up to fly to heaven on a chariot of fire. God makes himself known as a, a fire of righteousness and cleansing throughout uh, the scripture. Moses sees this fire, though, and he wants to investigate it. Look what God says as he approaches. Pat read it. Here it is. Moses, Moses. And Moses replied, here I am. We have to understand these, the way that it's worded here. Moses, this is a term of endearment. This is God. This is God greeting Moses the way a good friend would greet another good friend as a, a way of extending uh, an invitation that I want to talk to you. It's an inviting way of greeting somebody. It's not someone hollering out. Hey, Moses, you big slacker. It's Moses, buddy, come here. I want to talk to you. It's, it's, an, it's an endearing way of calling Moses over, and Moses doesn't answer respectfully or disrespectfully. It's hard to tell at this point if he knows it's God talking. He says, okay. Yeah, a, a standard way of acknowledging someone's greeting, but what's important here is to note that God has reached out to Moses. Uh, the first words he spoke, speaks to him are terms to draw him into relationship. Moses, I want to talk to you. Take your shoes off, though, because I need you to understand, I am God, I am other than you, I am not the same as you, and the ground you're standing is set apart, it's holy, so take off your shoes, but God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, he says, Moses, I am God who has made a promise to Abraham, your father, to Isaac, your father, to Jacob, your father, this is really important to understand what God is doing here, he's saying to Moses, Moses, come closer, I am the promise-keeping God. You may have forgotten my promises. You have may have forgotten your promises. But Moses, I am the promise-keeping God, and I am calling out to you to keep my promises. Moses here, the runaway murderer, the failure, the ne'er-do-well, the guy resigned to a, a life of oblivion in the wilderness is being called by God, not because Moses is a hero, not because he has something to offer. He's being called by God because God is a promise-keeping God. And in the middle of Moses' wilderness, God says, I will keep my promise. And in fact, you will see it profoundly in the days to come. Another guy faced a wilderness which parallels Moses' life as well as Israel, and that guy is named Jesus, and this is in Matthew chapter 4. I just want to go over there really quickly in this moment because it will help us understand better Moses' 40 years shepherding as well as later on Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. This is Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read parts of it and summarize parts of it. You're familiar with it. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he was going to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, lo and behold, he was hungry. I fast for 40 minutes and I'm hungry. The 
tempter, that is the devil, came to him and said, Hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you turn these rocks into bread? You're hungry. You can do that. That makes sense. And Jesus says, no, the Bible says man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil takes him way up into the holy city and up to the pinnacle of the temple, very high. And he says, why don't you throw this off, yourself off of this temple? Because if you want to quote scripture, I know the Bible too, the devil says. The Bible says that the angels will watch over you and your foot won't even hit the ground. Go ahead, see if it's true. I dare you. Well, that part's not in there. I added that. And Jesus said, no, the Bible, what it says is don't put God to the test. So no, I won't do that. And then finally, the devil shows him all the kingdoms and the power and the influences of the world and says, I will give you everything, all the power and influences of the world if you will worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, you shall worship the Lord your God and the Lord your God only. See, this is what we discover we're missing in the wilderness, in that land of oblivion, that probably many of us would describe our lives like from time to time. What we miss is questions around, is God really gonna provide everything that is needed? Is God really gonna provide the protection that I need? And finally, is God really gonna provide the meaning and the significance and the power of living a life that actually matters? And that's what the devil tempted Jesus with. God's not going to provide your food. He's not going to provide your protection. He's not going to provide you anything of significance. Look at you. You're in the wilderness, the land of oblivion. And this is exactly what Moses is going through, but he's resigned himself to it. Jesus walked through the wilderness, and he did it perfectly, just the way you're supposed to walk through the wilderness. He said, I don't need food. I've got God. I don't need protection. I have God. I don't need significance. I have the Lord. Moses, on the other hand, is in the wilderness just trying to get by. And the accuser comes into our minds and he says, why isn't God showing up? Why isn't God showing up in your oblivion? There's two reasons why you don't think God will show up in your wilderness, in your oblivion. Number one, first reason, I've messed up so bad that God has abandoned me. I have messed up so bad, God has abandoned me. This is the trap of shame. You're in the land of oblivion, just like Moses is, and he has messed up so bad. He murdered an Egyptian, and, he, and this is what's great. Even murdering an Egyptian, he's not even good at murder. How hard is it in a land completely covered by sand to hide a body in the sand? This is not complicated. Where is the body? In the sand. Good luck. He can't even do that right. So he could easily get caught in this trap. I have messed up so bad. God has abandoned me. That's how big of a lame I am. And so now I'm stuck in this wilderness. But let's go back to God's greeting. How did God greet him? Moses. Moses. Come here, buddy. Is that how you greet someone who's a, who's a failure? And then what does God tell him, Moses, the terms of the relationship are? Is it Moses' ability to perform well? No, he reminds him, I am the God who keeps promises. So guess what that means? It's okay if you're horrible at it, because I do it perfectly. 
So out in the oblivion of the wilderness, we can get caught up in the shame. I've messed up so bad God has abandoned me. God can only abandon us if he doesn't keep his promises. And God is telling us through Moses' life, he is the God who keeps his promises. There's another trap we face in the wilderness, and that's the trap of pride. That's when we say, God has failed me. I don't deserve this. On the one hand, some of us will struggle with shame in the wilderness. I have made, I messed up so bad, God will never come to me. Others of us will say, I messed up, but not this bad. I don't deserve this. God is a cruel taskmaster. And in our pride and arrogance, we can look up to God with raised heads and say, if only I could have a hearing in front of God, I would let him know what ought to be. We know Moses was struggling with something like this because what we see his response to God's appearance at the end of verse 6. What does it say? Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Moses feared for his life in God's presence because he knew something wasn't right and it wasn't, God wasn't the problem. A couple of things to pay attention to in the wilderness, then we'll look at the rest of these verses. For some of us, you might say from now and again, we, we might find ourselves in that land of oblivion. Here's a couple of ideas. Number one, it is usually in the wilderness that we have the greatest clarity to be able to see God. I mean, think about it in your life, those times where you really saw God in, in clear and powerful ways. Wasn't it during those times of great difficulty? None of us would pick going out into the wilderness, into the land of oblivion, but the fact is, when we are willing to rest in the power of God and His goodness, the wilderness and the land of oblivion is where we finally will have the clarity to see God and what He is up to the way Moses did. Secondly, in the wilderness, that land of difficulty and that land of oblivion, that is where we are finally able to have all of our self-importance stripped away. The fact is, all of us somewhere in our inner person have a closet that has a cape on it, and the cape says, Captain Amazing, and we wear it. Not everybody, and not all the time. We were taught well enough in kindergarten to be polite and nice, but the fact is, if pressed, are, are you amazing? Of course I am. I'm not just amazing, I'm Captain Amazing. I have a cape. The wilderness is where we finally realize that's a silly cape. We can have our self-importance, our self-reliance stripped away so that we can finally have eyes to see what God is up to. Third thing to pay attention to in the wilderness before we look at the last couple of verses is this. We don't have to, we don't always respond well in the wilderness. Sometimes we become jaded. The word the Bible uses is hardness of heart. We find ourselves in times of great suffering and great difficulty and our heart hardens toward God and we wonder what he's up to and in fact it makes us a little bit upset with him. Hardness of heart in the land of the wilderness will result in us accusing God of doing those things that we are actually doing. I'm in the wilderness so God is unfaithful. I'm in the land of oblivion so God is absent. I'm in the land of suffering and difficulty, so obviously God is not as important as I thought he was. None of those things are true of God, and all of those things are true of us. What happens when our heart becomes hard 
is we take all of the things we should recognize are true about our own frailty, and in a hardness of heart and arrogance, we say, that's what God is like. If only God were more like me. And that's exactly the trap of pride that drew Satan to his fall. And frankly, that's the same trap that draws us to fall. We need to be careful that when our heart is hardened, we don't accuse God of doing those things which we have done. Because God is the promise keeping God. God is always faithful. God is never absent. And there is not one thing God has ever done that was insignificant. Finally, the fourth observation, then we'll look at the last couple of verses. Sometimes when God brings that difficulty into our life, whatever it might be for you, we see it as God interrupting our life. Much like Moses might have thought of God running him out of Egypt. God has interrupted this life that I had planned. And God, I don't know if you saw the blueprint, it's a halfway decent life. Here's what we have to understand. God doesn't interrupt our life. God has never interrupted our life. God has a purpose and plan for every single one of us. The question actually ought to be, are we going to interrupt Him? God seeks to, on occasion, bring things into our life, say, hey, you've got a little cattywampus, and that's a theological term. I'm going to help draw you back to what your life is supposed to be. I'm going to help draw you back to where I'm taking you. But God... Hear me out on this. This is where I'm going. And God says, yeah, no, you're not. Well, God, don't interrupt me. We need to remember who God is in the relationship. God's interruption in our life is actually his effort to draw us back to the life he has called us to. God's interruption. Moses, the shepherd. Nothing is working out the way he planned. But God greets him as the God who seeks friendly relationship with Moses, and God greets him as the promise-keeping God, even in the land of his oblivion. All right, let's look at the last couple of verses. Verse 7 of Exodus 3, if you're still there. God's interruption in the land of the wilderness, the land of oblivion, especially God the Savior. Look with me at the beginning of verse 7. Pat read it. We'll just review it again. Here's what the Lord says. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in uh, surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I believe this Exodus 3 7 is your verse card, or at least an abbreviated version of it. We have to understand what's true about God the Savior, God's interruption in our life. It's this He sees, He knows, He hears. He sees what is going on in your life. The, the struggle and the suffering and the difficulty you're facing. The frustrations you're dealing with, some of which that are caused by your sin, some are caused by other people's sin. Others of it, it's just difficulty you're dealing with because the world is broken. God sees your particular struggles and difficulties. He hears us when we call out to Him. God, this is hard, and I want you to intervene. God, please send help. God, send deliverance. God, change these circumstances. Does God hear those prayers? Of course he does. God sees and he hears. And even more so, look how it ends. I know their sufferings. What does that mean? Have you ever had to go to the doctor? And you have an owie. And the doctor will say, does it hurt? 
Not as bad as it will once you start working on it, is what you ought to say. Say, yeah, it hurts a lot. What's, what do they ask then? On a scale of 1 to 10, where's your pain? 1 being irritating, 10 being childbirth of some kind. You'd be amazed how many guys say they're at a 10 in that situation. They have no idea what we're talking about, but we do. So you tell the doctor, and the doctor's like, yeah, you look like a 7 tops to me. Because people, you ask nurses if you know a nurse. Oh, they say they're a 10. You know that when you're at a 10, you are unable to speak because of the pain at risk of passing out. Oh, yeah, I'm that. Totally that. Okay? Some of you are having pain scale shame right now. I always say 10 how I know they're going to give me the good pain medication. God doesn't even have to ask us what our pain scale is. In fact, if you and him sat in a room and we had to describe your pain, he could describe it better than you. He would be able to say, you haven't even thought about some of the ways this hurts. I even, I've thought through ways this hurts that you aren't even thinking about. And it's not merely a knowledge of it. He, in his ability, is able to experience it and empathize with every single bit of it. If you ever sat with somebody and you're trying to get them to understand what you're going through, and to some degree they can get it, but they never really connect with it, and God is saying, no, I get it. I am in it real time with you. I have seen, I have heard, and I have known, and it doesn't matter whether or not you have perceived that I have seen, heard, and known, God's nearness to us is what defines him. God is defined as a God who is near his people, and his nearness is not defined by our our ability to perceive it. It's by his ability to be near. And how good is he at being near? Really good. God is our Savior because he sees our struggle, he hears about it, and he knows it. Verse 8, I have come down to save them out of the hands of the Egyptian. What God is saying is, I want to save my people out of Pharaoh's hand and put them into my hand. I'm going to draw them out of bondage to Pharaoh and draw them into covenant relationship with me. They will no longer be the people of Israel in Egypt. They will be the people of Israel in God. John chapter 10, Jesus says it this way about the Father. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is saying salvation in him through faith takes us out of bondage to sin and death, out of the hand of our Egypt, which is sin and death, into the hand of our Father and no one can take us out of the Father's hand. Good news, right? Not as good as you think. What is the struggle Israel is going to have all through their history? They don't want to be saved out of Egypt's hand into God's hand. They want God to save them out of Egypt so they can do whatever they want. But as people, we don't get to decide whether or not we're in someone's hand. We will be either that which makes us slaves, sin and death, or God's hand. Those are the two options. We don't get to be God. We will be the sheep. 
He is the shepherd. We will be in his hand, and he has eternal life in God's hand. That's where eternal life is. The problem is God saves us out of bondage into his hand, just like he did Israel. And then we go, wait, but it's nice over there. God's such a stick in the mud. Never get to do anything fun. It's just this eternal life gig. This is the tension you will always face when it comes to living with the suffering and relief from suffering in your life. And this is uh, maybe true of your own life. In the wilderness, we want God to be God. In the wilderness, God, you better show up, bro. Let's get this done. You've got to handle your business because this is horrible. Then we get to the land of milk and honey, which if you're fortunate enough, happens from time to time, doesn't it? People say, how's it going? Yeah, it's going pretty good. And then God shows up. Whoa, bro. Wait till I get in the wilderness. When I'm not in the wilderness, what I'd like for you to do is be a passenger on the cruise ship, my life. If we get into choppy waters, you get the captain's seat. No problem. Once we're smooth sailing, though, God, here's how it's going to work. Now, you have never prayed this way, have you? In the wilderness, we want God to be God. In Egypt, we cry out, God, save us. God, help us. And then we get out of Egypt, and now we've got everything that we could need. Say, God, you know, why don't you, why don't you go, on, go on break? Take a Union 10. You're fine. Verse 9 of Exodus 3. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God is telling us he understands specifically the kinds of oppression we're dealing with under sin and shame and guilt and death. In Matthew 10, Jesus says it this way, God knows every hair on your head, and just if, if a sparrow falls in the wilderness and God knows what's happening, he knows especially what's going on in your life. God is aware. God is not aloof. God is with you. God is the Savior. And then comes the biggest surprise at all, verse 10, and we're going to end with verse 10. God says to Moses, the murderer, living a life on his own out in the wilderness, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God is the Savior to come and redeem us and save us and also in the midst of that wilderness, in the midst of that difficulty, to give us meaning by calling us into his purpose, into something that's bigger than our lives, even if we've settled in our life like Moses had. God says, I am sending you to shepherd Israel. You've been shepherding for 40 years. You think these sheep are hard. It's now to go, now we're going to go varsity shepherd here. Jesus describes himself over and over again as our shepherd, sent to free us from our bondage, obviously not to Egypt, but our bondage to our sin and to death. He re re uh, receives us by being the promise-keeping God, saying, I will be your way, your uh, truth in your life. Whoever comes to the Father can come through me. Jesus says, uh, by putting your faith in me, you receive forgiveness of sins. There's no longer any bondage uh, to sin. 
Jesus says, I want to take you out of that which has destroyed you and bring you into a land flowing in, of milk and honey, meaning I want you to be a child of the king, to wear my righteousness. Here's what we need to understand about Jesus drawing us out of our bondage. It's this. Jesus is not coming into our life to give us a slightly better variation of the life we had already planned. Moses was not sent to Egypt to help them make the best they could of Egypt. Moses was sent to Egypt to tell them Egypt is death. To live, we have to leave. And Jesus comes into our life not merely to say, well, you've got a pretty decent life. What I'm going to do is put up some new curtains, maybe a little paint on the walls, update the uh, artwork, really take what you've done with your life and kind of tweak it so it's just that much better. Jesus says, no, I want your life to now be defined by my life, the covenant-keeping God. Romans 5.1 says this. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, and that's a fancy way of saying uh, delivered from the guilt of sin and death by Christ's sacrifice. Since we have been delivered from sin, delivered from death through faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news, right? Want me to keep reading anyway? Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now Stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Good news. Keep reading. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, wait, wait, wait. We're good after the first two verses. Because Jesus, listen, I want to take you from the land of sin and death into the land of eternal life. And between those two lands is the wilderness. We'll call that today. And so he says, in the, that joy we have in him, we rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame, because love, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He says this, no matter what you're going through, you can have hope because the Spirit is in you. What's the worst that could happen to a believer? Not that much. God is with us. It is bad if you're not interested in having God with you. Because he has given us himself. The normal pattern of life in God is this. Redemption from bondage. Wilderness. Glory. Redemption, what do we call that? Went forward, raised your hand. I see that hand, however you... I trust Jesus. I want forgiveness. Wilderness, what do we call that? Let's go with today. Then we'll have promised land, rest, glory. What do we call that? Your funeral. This is the normal pattern, but what we get in our head is kind of like Moses. Redemption, promised land, and then even better promised land. No, that's not the pattern. In the midst of the wilderness that is today, though, we get to learn of the faithfulness of God to be present with us even in our sufferings. God gives us rest even in the wilderness if we will have him, if we will rest in him.
two things, and then we're going to close with this. Two things we want to observe about God as our Savior. As we observe him interacting with Moses here. First thing, God has established a pattern in the Bible which I think should be encouraging to most of us, and is this. God is keenly interested in using the undeserving and the humble. And by humble, I don't mean people who say they're humble. As soon as you say you're humble, that means you're not. God has established a pattern in Scripture, and it has continued throughout all of time, of using people who ought not to be used, and those who are humiliated to such a degree they shouldn't be used. God has done his most profound work in Scripture through those who shouldn't have been used. And Moses is included in that. If you're waiting to be deserving to be used by God, don't do it. The worst thing you could do is be deserving. Mostly because you're not and you just haven't figured it out yet. The greatest place to be in the wilderness is a recognition in humble rest in God. I don't deserve him to be intervening. But I know he will because he is the promise keeping God. God uses the small by the world's standards. God uses the insignificant by the world's standards. God uses the most undeserving for his mighty work. You can look up Philippians 2, 5 through 11. That's exactly how Christ was described in his life here. Last thing I want to point out, Exodus 4. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. Moses saw the burning bush, or the bush with fire on it. The Lord saw that he turned aside to see. And what we have to understand about how this is worded is this, God made himself known to Moses, but was perfectly content to let Moses overlook it. God wanted Moses involved in this process in some way. He made himself known and had an idea that Moses would in some way recognize what was going on here. God will present this call, but he is perfectly content to allow us to just walk on by. So, boy, that's a good offer, God. I'm going, to, I'm going to get my other offers on the table and see if what you offer lines up. And God said, no, that's fine. Go ahead. He, he waits for us as the promise keeping God, and he will call to us. The Bible makes it quite clear to participate in the work of God in our life. We have to respond to God in faith. We have to say, God, I trust you. You're enough. I will rest in you even in the difficulty. God's interruption, God is our Savior, especially through Christ. You know, just for a few minutes, why don't we think about this? If you don't find yourself in a spot of difficulty, find yourself in the wilderness, find yourself in the oblivion, don't worry. Just wait 10 minutes. It's coming. And the biggest thing we can do is in that moment say, Is God near? And perhaps even a prayer you can learn to pray is this God, in this difficulty, I can feel my heart getting hard, saying, God, I don't know if you're good. Would you, by your spirit, allow me to rest in you, even in this difficulty? Lord, would you allow me to have a soft enough heart by faith to really experience the clarity of your relationship in this significant difficulty? God, would you allow me to know that you, you see, you hear, and know what is going on in my life?